Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations <clears throat> with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 660 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the website and a page which explains alternatives to PayPal. So my guest today is someone that I had on a couple of years ago, Asira. She's in Australia. Where are you in Australia, Asira? I'm on the Northern Beaches, which is in New South Wales, pretty close to Sydney. Okay, great. I listened to my first interview with her during the week and I thought, wow, what a great conversation. It's funny that we can have conversations like this and totally forget about everything that was discussed. But I guess I can be excused because I've done 660 of them. But sometimes I go back and listen to these things. I think, wow, that was fantastic. So much interesting stuff came out. So I'm sure this one will be like that too. But if you enjoy this one, consider listening to the first one as well. And we'll try not to repeat ourselves. So here's a short bio. Asira is an awakened spiritual teacher who has been initiated in advanced spiritual practices and rites across a number of traditions, including Australian Aboriginal, yogic Indian, African shamanism, and Tibetan Buddhist. When she was a young adult, Tibetan lamas recognized her as an important incarnation and traveled to Adelaide, Australia, to bring her to the Himalayas to be ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Asira is also honored as an Australian indigenous elder and wisdom keeper. I wanted to ask you a few questions about that paragraph, because I don't think we talked about those in the first interview. So, for instance, you were initiated in advanced spiritual practices and rites across a number of traditions. I want to mention each of these traditions and have you tell us a little bit about what those initiations entailed and what kind of practices you learned and what kind of effects those had. So let's start with Australian Aboriginal. Well, we have Aboriginal heritage in our family. It was quite a fractured experience growing up because of the stolen generation, which essentially occurred as a result of colonialism, that our people were stolen from their lands, their country put into missions, and consequently children born, oftentimes mixed with a white parent. Those children were also taken and given white names and assimilated into the colonised culture. That's happened all over the world. You remember um, Maurizio and Zaya of the SAND conference, the Science and Non-Duality conference? They're doing some kind of documentary now about that very phenomenon. They're going to Canada to talk to the indigenous people there who were put in these tribal schools in order to have the Indian beaten out of them, basically, which is Uh not a laughing matter. But as you may know, the Pope recently went to Canada to apologize for that. But anyway, I'll I'll let you continue. It was really a a crime. And I think today we're going to be talking a lot about the resurgence or re-enlivenment of indigenous wisdom around the world. Most definitely. And so as a child growing up, there was a lot of confusion because I was very connected to my Aboriginality and, and my spirit and my ancestors. I could hear my ancestors. 
and I could see and understand our Aboriginality physically as well. You know, I look at my uncle, I look at my brother and different relations and, you know, I say, but but trying to bring it up or deal with it, you know, but we're Aboriginal and I'd get kicked under the table and pretty well shut down. So I learned to shut that down from a young age and I had to deal with a lot of the power of my spiritual connection internally and with the guidance from my ancestors. But I also grew up with a strong connection to other people in the regions where I was growing up, other Aboriginal people, and we would say other mob or clans. Consequently, I went through a process and a series of rites of passage um, with different aunties and, and uncles and grandmothers. Ultimately, as I matured, I experienced greater and greater clarity of guidance from my ancestors, particularly when my grandfather passed over. And I wrote a a little bit, a little bit about this in my autobiography. I didn't disclose too much, but I, I did reference some things. And then I think it was three years after my, at least three years after my nana had passed, my uncle Oh, hang on. That must have been even more years than that. Anyway, sorry. I'm, sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit <laughs> mixed up with the count of years. But anyway, my uncle decided to come forward and confess that our nana had confessed to him on her close to parting of our Aboriginal heritage. Nana means aunt or grandmother? Or? Nana being grandmother. Grandmother, okay. And so my cousin then did the research and started finding bits and pieces. And long story short, um, these pieces ended up matching the guidance I had been given by my ancestors of places to go and the experiences I had and reconnecting with cousins and other relations. It all turned out to be fact. (laughs) And so, you know, this information came forward in our family after my autobiography had been published. And so that kind of created a bit of a turn of the tide in the family as well, because, you know, a lot of this stuff that I'd spoken about or proposed in earlier years, then family going, hmm, okay, so she was on the mummy, you know. (laughs) It wasn't just some fanciful imaginings. The stuff that you learned about your ancestry, are you saying that it came to you kind of psychically or in consciousness as opposed to being transmitted verbally by people? Initially, it was received by telepathy or psychically from the dreaming realms, what we would call the dreaming realms. for, For us, as with most Indigenous people around the world, we don't experience a dense separation or fixation between the realms of spirit and form or between past, present and future. And that's why our Aboriginal people refer to this as the dreaming, because it is all collectively here vibrating as consciousness. And so I was receiving all of this information from those levels. I was hearing my great-great-grandmother singing to me. I was hearing my great-grandfather speaking to me. And when I ended up following their directions and going back through our song lines. Song lines are 
tracks which relate to our cultural place of birth, our stories, our ancestry, and significant places, so sacred places. And when I arrived at these places, I then met relations and it was confirmed the things that I had received, including the language. I was hearing the language before connecting physically. So then, of course, after all the information came out, I undertook a much deeper process of reconnecting. And I am very reconnected with some of my lineage on both sides of my family, maternal and paternal. And I've gone through initiations of acknowledging and recognizing the well, the only word I can really use for that is the powers. I have been recognized as a Nankari Mabanwina, and that literally means a woman of power and healing spirit and the capacity for prophecy, the capacity for vision between all the realms, etc. Consequently, having been recognized with those powers, I was taken through very specific initiations which passed on wisdom and law, very specific wisdom and law linked to my ancestral lineages. And the thing that I have observed, having gone through that with several different branches of my lineage, is that despite the variances between place, so country, different regions and the differences in cultural practices, the underlying laws are the same. Pretty well, you know, like all around Australia. And then I began to see, well, hmm, these underlying laws are actually common to all Indigenous people around the world. So that's what I really connect with now, having gone through these rites of passage and initiation and feel is something to deeply celebrate and acknowledge for all people because it it actually relates to all people. It doesn't matter what our cultural background is. Are these underlying laws something that can be verbalized or are they more like laws of nature or impulses of intelligence or something that are really fundamental and would would be hard to put in words? Well, it can absolutely be put in words and that, and it's really core to a lot of the um, framework of teaching that I give and I pin that on a very distinct model so it can be distilled down in very simple principles so that people can identify with it and, and relate to it. And as you were saying, it, it's also existing at multiple levels but certainly we can look at it as a framework that helps everyone to connect to that and start tapping into that as well. Okay. And we'll be talking about that, I imagine, when we talk about the four sacred pillars of life. Mm -hmm. And then another tradition you got initiations in and practices was yogic Indian, in other words, the Indian or Hindu or Vedic tradition. In what sense? What did you do there? So practices of yoga and the higher tantric yogas. So I'm not talking the tantric yoga, which is focused at the sexual interactive level. I'm talking tantric yoga, the unions of all of the vessels, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And through a, a range of interactions with priests, high priests and shamans, 
that was in India and the Himalayas, as well as in Bali. I did a lot of work in Bali over a period of 20 years and was considered a, a high initiate or a, a high priestess in that work as well. And then African shamanism? Mm, that's been a very interesting aspect to the journey. A very loved Zulu shaman, Credo Matwa, who did a lot of work around the world. I underwent some initiations with him on the physical level and the astral level. Oh, and by the way, oftentimes initiation happens on both of those levels. For some people, they do get initiations more so on the astral level if they haven't been able to connect physically, but I have had both. So at the ground level, very physical passages of rites and then also at the astral level. And then finally, Tibetan Buddhists. And in your little bio, I mentioned that some Tibetan lamas came to Australia to take you back to the Himalayas. So I think you told that story to some extent in your first interview, but um, how did they find out about you and where you were? Mm. So from a very young age, as well as hearing and communicating with my ancestors, I was very active on the astral levels. I was sitting with a lot of yogis and, and masters and journeying through rituals on those other levels. And in particular, there were some Tibetan masters who were always present, two in particular. So we'd be sitting in these circles and they'd both be there. And I, I had constant ongoing communication. Some people just call it dreams. But for me, it was as real as we're sitting here having this conversation. Was it happening while your physical body was sleeping or were you in a, a wakeful meditation? Mostly. State? Mostly when the physical body was sleeping, but it would also occur when I was in a meditative state or sometimes I would just be sitting up in a yogic posture, like in lotus posture on the end of the bed, and I would be having these interactions. My family thought things were a little bit not so right for a while. but um, You were telling them anyway, about this? I tried, but same as me saying, oh, but we're Aboriginal. I was getting shut down, you know, or, you, you know, just start you just got an overactive imagination or, yeah. or maybe something's not quite right with you. Anyway, this progressed and it became more and more intense, lucid and potent to the point that by the time I was around 18 years old, I was then visited by this particular lama and he, he said to me in this visitation, I'm asking you to be prepared. I'm coming to get you. And I thought, hmm, okay, huh? What does that mean? He's going to take me on some really big astral trip or <laughs> like what's about to happen next? And a series of events occurred where my mother, by this time, certain events catalyzed her search because she started realizing, hang on, this stuff going on with my daughter is very real. And she went into some kind of personal spiritual crisis seeking thing and through a friend of hers after hearing all about my my visions and experiences she said oh you've got to go to Buddha house and as soon as she said that it was like a bolt of lightning went through me and in those days we had physical telephone books you know we didn't have all digital stuff <laughs> so I got out the, the phone book and the page it opened up on literally was Buddha house so I rang this place and I, I'm finding myself talking to this monk. 
I didn't even know what monks were. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm just having all these experiences. And he says, oh, you must come in. You must come in. Well, he didn't have to twist my arm. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm coming in. So I go into this Buddhist center and, and I'm telling him everything that had been happening. And he's just nodding and he's saying, mm, yes, yes, the lamas are coming. He's saying, yes, the two lamas, they're coming. And I'm thinking, okay. And they're due to arrive in two weeks. And one was coming one week before the other. Well, the first lama arrived and it was the laughing lama. This lama that was always in the circle and he was the one always with the biggest, cheekiest smile and we were always laughing. And we looked at each other and laughed <laughs> and hugged. So there he was in the physical. It was no longer this astral experience. And he took a hold of me and said, it's all okay. Lama is coming. Lama is coming. So the next week, the Lama turned up, the, the central one that I was really astral traveling with a lot. He would take me to a cave, which I knew as my cave from a previous incarnation. It was I was having these overlaps of past life, present life. Anyway, he turned up. And we just looked at each other and I just cried and cried. I just fell into his arms because I finally felt, oh, here is my family. Here are the people who know me, who understand me. I'm not crazy. This is not crazy. This is not unreal. I just cried. And so I underwent a process of preparation and that was in Adelaide. Then we started traveling there were some other events that were scheduled for australia and then i was to travel back with lama to nepal and then the himalayas and india and to go through a series of initiations and ultimately to end up being in personal consultation and engagement with his holiness dalai lama i was appointed as a scryer for the lamas a what Again, because of that acknowledgement, the recognition of the spiritual powers, they knew I could see on all these other levels. And so I was appointed to consult with lamas all around the region to assess their health or to assess circumstances and situation to give insight and to give psychic forecast as well. And then I was fully ordained and initiated by His Holiness. All the while this was happening, my mother had continued visiting the centre in Adelaide and, and was told by one of the women that, yes, the Lamas had known about your daughter, when she would be born, where she would be born, and when she should be collected. Interesting. So they came to take me back. So how long did you stay over there? That was for a year at that time oh hang on was that a year at that time all up I spent three years with in several lamas and traveling yeah. yes yeah and then a year stretch and a six month in complete isolated retreat as well so I went through passages like that specific initiation interesting well, I'm sure that we could spend our whole time talking just about that and <laughs> unpacking it, but we're not going to do that. That gives people a taste. And I think it's it's useful to go through information like that when talking to somebody who is a teacher, because 
one wonders. It's like you go to see a doctor. Okay, well, like, where did you go to medical school? What did you study? <laughs> you want to know yeah. a little bit about the person's credentials, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Good. And again, you know, it could be elaborated. I'm sure people can read more elaboration in your book or you mm-hmm. know, in talks you've given or something. So you use the phrase holistic awakening, which I like a lot. I've been a fan of the word holistic since the 1970s. And in your little um, newsletter or email you sent out, you said that you, in this interview we're doing right now, you're going to share how to move out of the mind into a lived experience in which the sacred is restored to each moment of our day-to-day life. I was actually going to mention that more in the beginning, just to say, here's what we're going to talk about today. Many spiritual teachers these days are talking about integrated awakening and embodied awakening. And to an extent, that's a, um, a reaction to what preceded it, which was people having a kind of a disembodied or fragmented awakening. The philosopher Ken Wilber talks about lines of development and how we have various faculties and facets of our makeup, and each of them could be considered a line of development. And you know, it's possible for certain lines to get way out of sync with other lines, mm-hmm. resulting in a kind of a lopsided development. And a number of spiritual teachers realized that that was taking place and started to focus more or emphasize on an integrated, holistic type of awakening. I still think a lot of work needs to be done in that area because I still think there's a lot of lopsidedness out there. But anyway, is that sort of along the lines of what you're talking about? Or would you distinguish Mm. what you're saying in some way from Mm. that? Yes, most definitely. Um, And I would agree that, as you just pointed out, a lot of our spiritual development in our modern cultures is lopsided and and particularly siloed because we've taken a lot from the Eastern traditions particularly, which have brought meditation into the popular personal development culture, which is fantastic. And of course, you know, the primary focus has been on the self, the true self or consciousness. And of course, that's very important. It's It's been serving a part of our, our process and our journey, understandably, and there's been an enormous amount to gain from that. And there's also incredible limitation and potential harm or problems that arise from a siloed approach as well. So if we look further back, deeper into those original traditions, uh, yogic training and rites of passage that utilize meditation as a power to tap into consciousness, we see that there was a much longer, more complex process of development. And it was established on a much firmer, broader foundation. So there was a lot of preparation that was involved. And all the same, the focus oftentimes has been in a very exclusive environment and has been still dissociated from the collective manifest experience of the world. Of course, we've been told, well, there's a purpose to that is to withdraw from your senses so that you can disentangle from the identifications, etc., etc. Yes, there's some benefit, but that's not the end goal. That's not actually liberation. That's just a cleansing. That's just a purification process. 
that's just one little part of the beginning of preparing for what awakening is really about. And so having gone through an incredible spectrum of experiences spiritually, in in training spiritually, as well as just my own lived experience, I've observed and witnessed a very common pattern in our modern spiritual approach, and that is the primary focus is on the person, the human, the individual, that I need peace, I am in conflict, I want liberation, I want to awaken to oneness, to truth, I want to transcend, I want to transcend this I, but it's still the I, it's still the focus on the me that is determining this, it's still the sponsoring thought, the motivator. So as I continued growing through my experiences, and by the way, I gave a huge period of teachings which really concentrated on consciousness as well, I was also endeavoring to give people this spectrum of experience that is holistic, which I bring much more into a grounding focus now as a result of my Aboriginal heritage and drawing on the Indigenous wisdom. Why is because a modern approach being focused on the soul or the self or or consciousness is missing out on so many elements and aspects of the play and the manifestation of consciousness through which we are created and through which we develop. So when I look at Indigenous culture and I look at my heritage, And if we all look at the way we come into existence, we'll see a common sequence of laws and patterns. First, we don't just land here. We emerge from creation. We emerge from earth, from nature. You know, we've all heard this, but how many of us are really truly connected with this truth? You know, it's oftentimes used as lip service. Oh, from earth we come to earth we return. Or dust to dust. Well, what does that? Yeah, dust to dust. And what does that really mean? If we breathe down into our body, and we breathe down into the earth, and we then look up from inside earth, we actually see that we're all a part of earth. We're one breathing organism, and so our culture, our people recognize this as the first point of manifestation of creation, the emergence of nature of creation. The second point is... Okay, are you starting to go through the four points? Oh, well, I can. Is that what you mean by second point? I I want to make sure that we delve deeply into each thing as we go through it. Let me just uh, come back at you for a minute uh, about some of the things you just said. Firstly, uh, there's the whole manifestation type teachings uh, like the secret and fulfill your desires, be a better person, be happier, have better relationships, really spiffing up the individuality as much as possible. And then there are those (laughs) spiffing it up. (laughs) (laughs) And then there are those who critique that, who say there's no end to that. You can 
spiff it up till your dying day, but you're never going to realize your true nature. And so they say, well, forget about all that. Let's just dive deep and realize who you ultimately are, which is you're not even a person. You're not an individual, you know, your universal consciousness. But then there's those who take refuge in that or in a concept of that, and you use the word conceptual here, and dismiss everything else as unimportant or as illusory. You know, okay, so you're not a person and you don't have free will and the world is an illusion and everything is ultimately meaningless. And and so then people get stuck in that. I interviewed a woman about a month ago named Jessica Eve, and she went deep into that world and ended up being very disembodied and nihilistic and depressed. And and she's helping other people get out of it now. And she says, you know, people people literally become suicidal because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. life loses its juice, you know, its meaning and, and they can't even relate to their children. And I don't know. It's, sorry, I don't want to belabor this. And I could go on, but there are a number of things where people emphasize a number of approaches where people emphasize a certain aspect of it to generally to the exclusion of other aspects, you know, like the manifestation thing might exclude the universality thing and the universality thing excludes the relative. And then there are devotional practices, which exclude the intellect and vice versa and so on and so forth. And so what I gather that you're aiming at is something which is again, the word holistic, which is is a simultaneous development of all facets Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. life. That's right. Thank you for bringing it back to that. And I just want to acknowledge the point you made about, did you say Jessica Eve? Jessica Eve, um, Uh, yeah. You see her on Bath Gap about a month ago. Right. And this conversation revolving around the dangers or conflicts that can arise out of that very... Right. Neo-Advaita, which is it's kind of like a a modernised stream of Advaita Vedanta missing a lot of the you know, the foundations and the preparation. Yeah, and yeah it, exactly. You mentioned, of... you mentioned preparation. They just come out and say, you're already enlightened. You're done. You don't need practices. Mm, mm, just mm. realize that and, you know, take that off your bucket list. I think the key point you made is that a lot of these variations, as you, you reference, become fixated to the exclusion of other aspects. And that was my observation throughout my life and my journey and my spiritual experiences is that it seems to be the the human inclination to become fixated and to seek a point of reference that, oh, now I can relate to this, so I'm going to just step right inside this box and I'll be comfortable and safe. And I think it's because our awareness is normally constricted as human beings who aren't fully realized. We focus on boundaries and we lose the boundless in the process. Like movie screen analogy, there's images playing on the screen. We focus on specific images and lose the screen. Mm. What I really wanted to help people with, precisely as you said, is to recognize these co-occurring streams of who and what we are and how we develop. And the closest thing I could come to in supporting that was in recognizing my own heritage, my own cultural heritage, and that of Indigenous law and wisdom. And as I mentioned briefly before, if we look at it, really, these principles are underpinning every Indigenous culture around the world. And so why I refer to this is because 
just as you said, it's our inclination to focus on the boundaries and indeed to want the boundaries and maybe lose sight of the bigger picture. But at the same time, we crave the bigger picture. And so we're at risk of going either, oh, well, none of this is real anyway. I am (laughs) not my mind. Oh, I am already that. Or we become absolutely obsessively attached to a certain way. And the cultural framework or the process framework I was referring to, you asked, is it something that can be defined with, you know, our intellect or or yeah, thoughts or is it just energetic? Yeah, yeah verbalised. We can have a framework. And the beautiful thing about this framework is it allows for that relationship between the really grounded, the manifest experience and the transcendent experience as well. So it, it allows for all of that to come together and be encountered and to grow and nurture that in an order that matches natural law. So if we look at our human experience, there are natural laws to how we come into form, how we manifest, how we become aware, how we become more aware, how we nurture and sustain our awareness and connectivity, how we sustain and nurture our unique individuality, but also inclusivity with all other life. So there are ways we can nurture that. And I really believe that is the greatest gift Indigenous wisdom has to offer the world today, that we really have enormous possibility on hand, not to go back to the old ways, but to utilise the principles and the wisdom to incorporate that into our lived experience now. So you're saying that Indigenous wisdom the most precious thing it can offer is to enable us to incorporate boundaries and boundless and integrate them together and live both. Or you could say individual and universal, if you want to use those. Mm -hmm. Does that summarize what you just said? Yes, there's that. And that it is how we can address our challenges, our crises. The reason we are in crises, it is how we can tap into our greatest creative possibility, how we can find true cooperation and unity. It is how we can really holistically awaken. So what if somebody lives in Manhattan or Hong Kong or New Delhi or someplace like that? They're in a very unnatural urban setting. Are they at a disadvantage in terms of accessing Indigenous wisdom? Not at all. Not at all. And perhaps to help us segue into answering that more fully, I'll just give a a brief overview of what I'm referring to by the four sacred pillars and why I'm referencing that as a map that we can all use. So just going back one little step to the point we address, which is most of our approach to this point in our, our modern spiritual development has been quite siloed and focused on the me, the individual. And we'd agree on that, whether it's been Advaita Vedanta or the manifestation crew, any of the paths, typically it's the me sponsoring it. So it's very siloed on the self. Whereas holistic awakening and the four sacred pillars flips that on its head. It says, wait on a moment, 
the truth really is that we're not a separate individual me. So what is the model that naturally reflects that and carries us through that experience, supports and nurtures that experience as we develop? So rather than starting with the self, the individual, we then start with our connection to nature, to country. So the four pillars are not just the self, we come back to number one being nature and country, number two being kinship or relationship between all living things, number three being the self, the soul, the spirit, and number four being the natural laws, the cosmos. And here's why. I started to probably prematurely dive into that a bit before. If we look at the natural laws of what we are, of creation of consciousness, we emerge from creation. We are Earth's children, creatures, and we're a product of her. Secondly, we are born through our parents, our family, and in Indigenous culture, we know that all the trees, all the rocks, all the rivers, the waterways, the insects, everything that is surrounding us has been contributing to those life forces of our people to then come together to bring in a new soul. And so kinship is not exclusive to just our parents and our siblings or our aunts and uncles. It's inclusive of all of the living beings, all of the elements. You think about it, when we are born, we're in an oceanic state. We're not a separate me yet. We don't know our individuality. We are actually a part of our parents, a part of the whole environment. So that's our first two steps into manifesting as consciousness. We then grow and start to separate out and recognize our unique individuality and start to deepen into that experience to realize, oh, wait on a moment, even though I'm separate, we're actually all still of the same stuff. We're all made of the same stuff, of spirit, of life force, of energy. And that then points to all the overarching natural laws which are true to every single one of us. It doesn't matter if you're living in Manhattan or in Singapore. Those laws are fundamental to every single one of us. So even if you are living in an apartment block, how does that apartment block exist? How was it made? Where are you sitting? You're still sitting on earth. And even if there's only one tree in your neighborhood, you can still reconnect to that tree. You can still recognize the earth beneath your feet. You can still open your eyes and look up at the sky and recognize, you know, we're part of this one living, breathing organism called earth. So a bit like building a fire, if we try and start a fire with a wet, soggy log and we don't acknowledge or recognize all the other pieces that builds a fire, you might have some flint, a spark of an idea, the concept. You try to spark it off on this soggy, wet log and, and what happens? It doesn't get very far. It smolders. But you prepare the ground. You make a nice basin with enough air and breadth in that ground. You then bring to it little bits of kindling. Just start with the small little bits and then a few bigger bits. And 
you wait for the logs to dry out and then you put the logs there and then you spark that concept and before long you've got a blazing fire. So in the same way, if we return to the natural laws of how we exist, it's no longer an effort to be connected, to be conscious, to be present. It's no longer an effort to realize the interconnectivity of every living thing. Because when you take your shoes off, you stand barefoot on the earth, or you sit and you take your awareness deeply into the connection with earth, and you do that often enough, naturally you start to feel, oh, the trees are connected to me. Oh, the roots are under my feet. Oh, the birds are a part of this environment. Naturally that starts to wake up. And earth herself, every living thing, is expressing and singing intelligence into us. And we're only going to be able to hear that if we connect back with it. But when we do, we have access to a far greater source of wisdom and intelligence than we can ever acquire from our individual siloed human experience. And so from that, naturally, then we build the relationship of interconnectivity with every other living thing, with our family. We have a very different level and quality of relationship from that place because it's no longer conceptual. It's tangible. It's visceral. It's felt. It's emerging from our own experience. Then we feel at peace with our own soul. We already start to have a shift of energy physiologically. And look, a lot of masters and teachers will speak to this point that awareness in essence is actually a science. Consciousness, being conscious, meditating is a science. It is a physiological state. So if we're connected with earth, we plug into that physiological state multiplied, maximum multiplied compared to isolating ourselves and just sitting in a temple. And I'm not saying there's no benefit in that. I'm not saying we can't reach beautiful, incredible realizations. What I'm saying is, coming back to your point, that's incredibly lopsided. So if we don't have this connectivity, connection with nature all around us, kinship, our soul, and the natural laws, the cosmos, we're missing the greater picture. And we're not going to have the right foundations for our development. So many people end up, end up in psychosis because they don't have those foundations. So if a person were to work with you, do they proceed through these four steps, nature, relationships, self, cosmos, sequentially or simultaneously? Well, it can actually be both. And in essence, it is both anyway, because even if you put your attention immediately on nature, what happens is within that experience, there is a natural unfolding of encounters and perceptions already. Because once we sit deeply in connection with Earth, our whole field becomes spatial. We become aware of the rocks, the insects, the trees. So, ah, now we're coming into kinship. Our awareness expands. We become aware of the people around us, not just our family. Ah, oh, we feel more deeply seated in our soul because when we're in that open state of awareness, we're in love. We connect more deeply in love. And once we're in that state, 
we see and understand the relationship between all things. You don't have to make it happen. So yes, it can be sequential and simultaneous. And I do that deliberately because most often people really do appreciate steps to follow. And it's also how we learn and develop as children. So if we learn what the beginning point of connection and existence is, then we've got a really strong foundation and it's easy to step off from there. I imagine different people have these different facets developed to different degrees. So for instance, someone might have a job as a park ranger and they spend all their time out in nature, or they're really into camping and hiking and mountain climbing and outdoor sports or something like that. But then they're their relationships suck or whatever. Or maybe some people are in a very happy relationship, but they never get out of the city and into nature. Or somebody might be an astronomer and they're really into understanding the cosmos and studying it, but they're rather deficient in all these other areas. Is that relevant to what you're saying? Are you saying that we really need to get everything balanced and if we're deficient in certain areas, then address those deficiencies? Most definitely. Because crises is a state of imbalance, isn't it? No matter how small or big that crisis is to us as individuals, it's telling us something is not in balance. And if we look at the world today, we can come right back to where our crises began. And it began with our dispossession, our disconnection from nature. The reason we're all seeking spirit and self is because we're disconnected. It's because we feel deficient. So if we bring ourselves back into balance, like you say, some people might already have a strong relationship with nature, or maybe they're looking at it only from a certain angle. Some people might have a strong connection in relationship and uh, have a fear of nature, etc. So what I am proposing is precisely that, that holistic awakening is about a balanced and inclusive and encompassing approach. It is about us understanding the relationship in all these primary elements of our life and the relationship between the seen and the unseen. So this acts then as a map that a person can say, hmm, yeah, okay, I've been so focused on my relationships and and I haven't gone and sat with earth. I don't feel my connection with earth. Hmm, okay, I'm going to give some energy to that. Or they might be just focused on the materialistic path and have forgotten the value of deeper meaning in interpersonal relationships between all living things, etc. So yes. Interesting. In my own life, I spend a couple hours walking in the woods every day or skiing in the woods if we have snow. I spend a couple hours meditating. I love to contemplate the cosmos. I have like desktop background pictures on my computer of galaxies and stuff that I look at every day. And then relationships, my wife, my friends, and and all these people I talk to like you. So maybe I'm doing okay by your measure. I would say, yes, you're doing very okay. (laughs) And I guess my question and invitation is how can we expand and improve on that? Yeah, all four of them could be deeper, richer. Exactly. And I guess as we go more deeply into it, we discover other layers and ways of connecting that open our eyes 
in ways we never imagined possible. And, and that's one of the things I've seen happen for people who go through the deeper programs with me. And I realise a lot of people who are listening in or watching won't necessarily be able to attend those, but hey, maybe that's some inspiration for you that one day, you know, that can be a, a goal that you come and join in an immersive program because everyone who goes through those immersive programs with me, they come out going, wow, wow, I I am never going to have the same relationship with myself or others or life ever again. It is completely new and expanded and different to what they ever imagined was possible. How so long are your invitation. immersive programs? Well, it depends. It might be a day immersive program or it might be a two-day or a three-day or I also do like a five-day retreat. Well, if you're um, going to fly to Australia from you here, fly to Australia, it better be you, longer. You, yep, if you fly to Australia, you book in for the five-day retreat. So usually I would do an immersive retreat where it's a reconnection and sacred living, conscious awakening somewhere local we've got a great retreat venue we work with yeah. and then I also do pilgrimage and so I take people on uh, a songline journey and, and that is going to sacred places and sacred country as well which is profound yeah because I was thinking you can't even get over jet lag in five days so um, <laughs> I mean you yourself did a six-month thing in India and I've done six-month things in Europe and and so on it takes a while to really settle in yeah, for sure. But people do it. You know, I have people turning up from all around the world who come for the five-day programs or, or pilgrimage, and um, they're very happy campers. That's good. <laughs> Here in the States, I'm sure they have something like that over there, too. They have these programs for kids who live in Harlem, and, and place, Harlem is a part of Manhattan, and they'll take them out to the Catskills, which are some mountains north of New York City, and it's like, you know, it's like a summer camp. And But a lot of these kids have never been out of the city. And so they go there and they swim and they ride horses and they, you know, play in the woods. And, and it's it's very restorative and uh, beneficial for them. Absolutely. Um, I guess one thing I want to comment on is that oftentimes the perception about utilizing this relationship with Earth is somewhat dumbed down a bit we just think of it as this oh well that's nice let's let's go out into nature and have a lovely little experience and what I really hope to bring to people is something that is not not about going out to nature and just having a brief little scenario that you go there and then oh that's done and you you go back to your life but rather that you are connected in a way that will continue with you forever and that you will keep building on that experience every moment into the future. Even if you have to live in a city. Exactly. Even if you live in the city, as I briefly mentioned before, there's there's ways of developing that connection with Earth. Um, so it's really important people don't feel that it's out of their reach and that it's somehow exclusive to the lucky few that live closer to nature. We're all a part of it. Although I think if we're talking ideal, to me, an ideal world would not have these huge, noisy cities. And you see kind oh, of... 100%. Yeah, you, you do see 
artist renderings of what cities of the future might be like with all kinds of trees and even on the buildings there's plants hanging off them and <laughs> they become much more verdant and healthy looking and there are people who are working towards that kind of thing but it does seem very unnatural to cram 20 million people into a small area and to be dependent on shipping everything in for their sustenance and so on precisely unnatural precisely and largely this is because of our still very dominant cultural mindset on the planet being consumerism and that we are over consuming it is not sustainable and as long as we do wherever there is overconsumption, there is undersupply on the opposite side and cities and concrete masses are a strange mix of the two it's both a manifestation of greed and overconsumption and a diminishment of true life especially for many you know like many people living in slums yeah i'm thinking of uh, the subtle aspect of it you know findhorn in scotland where david spangler and other people have this ability to um see the the nature spirits and the devas and and all these things i don't perceive those things myself but i imagine that in a rural setting if one had that kind of perception which i presume you do that one would see those little subtle beings in much greater abundance than in in some slum or some intense industrial place absolutely yeah. absolutely and that's very common to indigenous culture as well you right know? And that ability coincides with a depth of connection with country, with nature, with other living beings, with our soul and with the cosmic law. So it all coincides. Yeah. And as I understand it, these subtle beings play a vital role in the functioning of nature and functioning of the world. And if we humans structure an environment in which is inhospitable to them, then there's a kind of a deadness to the atmosphere, which must influence um, those who live there negatively. Most definitely. And this is why Indigenous cultures do suffer so much when dispossessed. It is because that wound is still very fresh and very raw, and there's still the awareness of what is when we live in natural order, you know, when we, we live in accord with the natural laws. So we're still aware of that and there's incredible grief and loss and disconnection at multiple levels. We can also look at subtle elements as well, such as the ions, the ionic balance of an environment, right. negative ions compared to the positive ions, and that in a healthy environment we would have one positive ion to like 100,000 negative ions, whereas in cities, we're having the complete reverse and multiplied exponentially. Yeah. So we're having hundreds of thousands of positive ions with one negative ion, which diminishes the life force field drastically. Right. The negative ones are good. Like around exactly. a waterfall, there'll be a lot of negative ions. Here in North America, the indigenous people have it pretty rough. I mean, there's a lot of alcoholism and crime and violence and uh, poverty and disease. That population was hit very hard by COVID compared to the general population, much harder than the general population. Is it that way in Australia too? It is. And that's a direct reflection of 
how fresh the wounds are, how fresh the trauma is. Right. Because alcoholism, violence is all an externalization of unresolved trauma. Yeah. And it's intergenerational. So as long as that trauma is not addressed, people seek to suppress it or throw it off. So violence is an act of trying to throw it off and alcoholism, drug addiction, crime, etc., is trying to bury it, trying to distract from it. I was a student of Marshi Mahesh Yogi back in the day, and um, he made a big deal out of the importance of somehow all the indigenous cultures of the world being resuscitated, you know, and being re-enlivened. He felt like the world couldn't get enlightened unless that happened, and that they played a vital role in enlivening and supporting, we could say, the natural law or the laws of nature. So you're speaking of them in terms of their wisdom. And I think he would have concurred with that. But he was also just saying their very existence needs to be revived in order for humanity to flourish. Absolutely. And as you were speaking that, I was just feeling such a depth of gratitude for you to voice that, for it to be spoken and acknowledged. I recognize this as well. Our people, our culture recognize this as well. And so to speak to those two aspects, one, yes, because our people are wisdom keepers. My ancestors, we lived for 50, 60,000 years sustainably. Our people were awakefully living. Our people were consciously existing in a holistic way. So from that perspective, the wisdom, the depth of knowledge that is available to address the imbalances that are happening in the world is extraordinary and must be resourced. Secondly, because our Indigenous people still carry that in the forefront of awareness, it's vibrating in ourselves, in our whole being. We are vibrationally living it. So we're like tuning forks. And I think that speaks to the second point that you refer to, that it's not just about the knowledge, the mind or the wisdom. It's about the vibration that Indigenous people hold and carry. And that happens not just through their being, like I say, they're like tuning forks, but it happens through the very culture, story, song, dance, ritual. These things are all vibrating, creating an energy field of awakened activity and interconnectivity. We know everything is vibrational, right? We know that awakening is actually a process of realigning ourselves in frequency to a more spatial-centered state of awareness. So we directly consciously experience that oneness, the field of oneness. That's a vibrational state. So why I said before, you know, meditation is a science because it's a physiological state. If we get into the right brainwave state, we get into that enlightened self. But the key is, can we integrate it? Can we embody it? And so that's why we need the holistic map. And so if we understand everything is vibrational, then our Indigenous people become an incredible player 
in our process of awakening humanity as a whole and healing humanity as a whole. Let's uh, dwell on this a little bit more. I like the tuning fork example. You could also think of it as transmitters. Mm-hmm. You know how some people say that you know, there's yogis in the Himalayas who are just in seclusion, but they're transmitting this influence that is keeping the world from blowing itself up, <laughs> things like that. Mm-hmm. I guess another way of putting this is that, let me see how this comes out. Indigenous people have the potential to attune themselves to the natural laws of the land in which they live more readily than people who are estranged from traditional cultures. And that in doing that, they have the potential to become transmitters of the enlivening value of natural law for their surroundings and and for the world. And if people like this around the world do this, it would be just a real big engine on the train for progress of humanity. How's that sound? That sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way you put it. I agree 100%. And I might even say not just transmitters, but transceivers Yeah, because of that capacity to be so plugged in and to receive all of the information of all of the realms and the life force, Trans- etc. What is a transducer? I'm somehow thinking of, of something that passes through it and then out from it to the environment. Maybe a transmitter is that, but there might be a better word. Oh, well, that's why Condu- I said Conduits, that's a good word. There you go. Yeah. Conduit. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And so that's why I referenced, you know, the part at play, which is song, story, dance, ritual. So our people have known that consciously. It wasn't just some fanciful story or concept. Our people have known it for tens of thousands of years and lived within it and um, functioned within it and nurtured it. We're very aware how creation came into existence or comes into existence is through sound, everything is sound frequency. Yeah. And so what we speak plays a part in that. Every single word we utter now is carrying a vibration that is influencing the tapestry surrounding us on and on and on and on and on. These words we've spoken are traveling on forever. And so if we are plugged in, aligned with the very psyche of earth, of nature, and the subtle realms, if we're plugged in with this, we're then vibrating with the soul heart of creation and the cosmos, and our song and our words are in absolute attunement and synchronicity with that. You imagine the vibrational field that is vibrating out and rippling through everything as a result of that. That's really good. Now, here's a related point. I mentioned Marishi earlier and what he was saying about the indigenous cultures. Another thing he emphasized at times was that the negative influence of imprisoning millions of people. I mean, here in the United States, I think we have a a higher per capita rate of imprisonment than any other country in the world. I think there are at least 2 million people in state and federal prisons. And he felt that those were Obviously, these ideas were not unique to him. I'm just mentioning him because he was my Mm. teacher. But he felt that those were like, just as we're speaking of positive transmitters, they were like negative transmitters. They were these concentrated focal points of 
stress and tension and fear and anger and so on, frustration, and that the, they radiated an influence out to society. So one of his interests was in somehow, he didn't do too much about it, but some kind of prison reform so that people could be truly rehabilitated and shift their influence from negative to positive. And it's a tall order because it's a huge problem. But I think ultimately, if society is to be transformed, that's going to have to be part of it. I agree. I've spoken to this as well. And that if a person is committing a crime, it is born of some unresolved wound, some unresolved trauma. And that is the thing to address, to remedy that. And incidentally, if people want to watch my first interview with Asira, she was the victim of a rather horrendous crime. And she managed to save her life really by recognizing the humanity of her attacker and loving him while he was in the midst of killing her. And it stopped him in his tracks. So anyway, that'll be a teaser for watching the first interview. Yes. Thank you for bringing that point into it, because I guess I am speaking from direct experience. I'm speaking from that direct observation that even a crime of that scale, even more so a crime of that scale, is a direct reflection of the degree of woundedness in the individual. And it is up to us collectively as a society, well, first of all, individually, to recognise we all have wounds, we all have a shadow side, and it is our responsibility to address that. Was it our fault that we were violated? No, but is it our responsibility in the here, now and following forward to bring love and awareness and healing to it? Yes, it is. And of course, with support. So any of you who may be suffering, I really acknowledge that and encourage you not just to feel you're alone in that responsibility, but you can be supported. Back to the point about the penitentiary system it's broken. It's dysfunctional. It actually perpetuates crime and violence because those who end up in the system, same as you were saying about in Canada, the rate of crime amongst the Indigenous people in Australia, our Indigenous people are the highest percentage and children who are sentenced. Aboriginal children is the highest percentage of incarceration in Australia. It's shocking. And there are some steps going towards this. There is a recognition that we need rehabilitation of our our criminals. So there are some camps that are doing some work on that. Uh, Yes, we've got a long way to go. What I also know is that Indigenous people held systems of law that were based on rehabilitation. And there was such a low rate of crime or dysfunction anyway because we were living in accord with natural laws. So the first thing being, the first thing being, it's not me and you separate and I don't own this, it's we. And we are responsible and caretakers of all of this. And so there's one word I really would love to share with you from my ancestral language, just like most of you and most of our listeners would know the word namaste a Sanskrit word, a beautiful word that vibrates in honour and recognition of the self or the God within self. Well, this ancestral word is Ngali Gumara. We can have different layers of translation. It means we are one. But if we go deeply into it, it means we are one. I am not number one. 
which is kind of similar to the meaning of namaste also, recognizing the universal nature that's within me and you both meaning we're one because fundamentally we are one. Exactly, exactly. And I guess the key focus on that and, and why I share that as often as possible is because, as I referenced earlier, even though we might not be consciously, deliberately doing it with our, you know, modern spiritual approach, it is siloed and it is still motivated primarily by the self, the me, the, the separate individual. Even though we can say, yeah, I want to be one. I realize we're one. We don't live as it. We don't live as if it really is true. And secondly, I'm referencing it because of your comments about the penitentiary system and that if we really come back to living in truth with the natural laws that we really are not separate we are distinct we must honor and recognize our uniqueness but that we truly are interdependent then we can begin to dissolve centralized systems which are based on dispossession control greed corruption and elitism as long as we have those systems existing we will have wounding trauma we will have crises we will have dysfunction within society at large when i hear you say things like that or other people say things like that i come back to the thought that you have to really change individuals to change systems because totally otherwise it's too top down it's like a forest which is gray and dying and so on you have to somehow make each individual tree healthy you can't just fly over with an airplane and spray paint the forest. It doesn't. No, it doesn't I agree. Fit. And let's take an example where we can actually approach from both directions. Education. I'm very passionate about bringing what I can to the youth, supporting the youth. For example, I've, I've just worked with a young women's camp, 40 young Indigenous women, and speaking about addressing how to bring more holistic learning into the education system with people in the education departments. So on the one hand, we as adults, as we address ourselves, we create a change surrounding us. And then I can take that awareness into a system like a school, like education, and help to just gently massage it in a direction where that system then supports a collective group of individuals. In my view, that's where it starts. It starts with our early childhood development. And so those of us who know and understand this and have insight that can provide healthy developmental material, then we actually are starting to change the system at the same time as individuals. You've really got me thinking about our oneness now and and how important this is in the whole consideration. There's a sort of an out of sight, out of mind mentality a lot of times with things. If you can just keep the immigrants out or keep the prisoners in their prisons or keep the poor people in their ghettos or whatever, then I don't have to look at them. But I think, again, no man is an island, John Donne wrote in his poem. We are all influenced by all of us. If you look at the earth from outer space, there are no national boundaries. And if you could look at the consciousness of humanity, if you could see that as a thing, 
then you can't build walls in it. Everyone influences everybody else. And so it's really uh, essential, I think, that we somehow cultivate the appreciation of we're all in this together and that you can't have millions of people locked up in prisons and you yourself be happy. You won't be because their unhappiness is going to bleed into your consciousness on some subtle level. There could be huge discussions about practical ways of solving this, but it seems to me that they should involve doing things to make people healthier physically, mentally, give them access to spiritual technologies, give them access to education. Instead of a punishment approach, make them suffer for their crimes. They deserve to suffer. That just exacerbates the problem and perpetuates it. Exactly. And I guess one of the challenges is, Sadly, the truth is some individuals are beyond repair. Yeah, some individuals, their psyche is is just destroyed. They may be irretrievable in this lifetime, but at least they can be made right. comfortable at and least, keep, keep them out of harm's way. Exactly. And then, as you said, addressing these imbalances, really it's incumbent upon us as spiritual beings and seekers and practitioners to play our part. So that might not be go to the prison to deal with those who are incarcerated. It might be go into your heart to deal with the wound you still hold because of a transgression from one of your family members or a work colleague or a friend. Look deep into your heart to understand the root cause of that transgression. And Great idea. If you want to hear about my own experience, I won't go into it now. Read my autobiography or we touched on that in the previous experience. But what happened for me was I saw that that violation, that man tried to kill me because of his own wound, his own disconnection from love. And so this immense love arose in me for that soul. And it's not even something you can do conceptually. It arises when you make contact with that truth and you know it deeply. You feel it in your soul. You can relate to, you can identify with that wounding because you have been wounded yourself. I've been wounded. I have transgressed. I know that my own transgressions have come from my own wounds. So if another is acting in violation or causing a crime or whatever it is, there's something deeply traumatized in that soul. And let's bring love and compassion to that. That's good. Well, maybe we're done with that particular phase of our discussion, or maybe we'll come around back to it. But I want to make sure that we give proper attention to all the four pillars of your teaching. Where would you like to go next in terms of fleshing out our discussion about the, your four pillars model? So brief recap, when we are connected with earth, we have a much more natural, it naturally follows that we start to feel more connected with all the living beings in our environment, not just our family. We deepen that relationship. From there, we're more settled in ourselves. No, I just have to add, when you say living beings, now I think of the animals. I mean, God, what we do to the animals. Here in Iowa state, the state I live in, there are I don't know, 23 million pigs and 3 million people. And most of the hogs, most of the pigs live in these confinement things where there's 1,200 of them in a single barn that's really not that big. 
and they're confined such that they can't turn around and they they're standing over a manure pit you know which if the fans stop working people die in there because of the stench literally i mean i don't want to get too graphic but to me what we do to the animals of this world you know whatsoever you do unto the least of these you do unto me jesus said so that's another whole i mean there's so many things like that which really have to be healed and i'm sorry for interrupting you but i just wanted to throw that in there oh no please don't be sorry it's a really relevant point because we are all interconnected one of our challenges is taking an all or nothing approach that we become lopsided again because of course there's a lot of people that have adopted veganism in the quest to address this issue of the inhumane treatment of our livestock the primary food sources of the meat industry etc and i guess if we look at that in comparison to an indigenous culture we see what's happening in the world is i think i might have said this before but a more mindset it's the greed you know i think we touched on this in in our previous interview and so if we look at the level of greed then we can see where this scale of farming is coming from and it's all resting on greed and overconsumption when we compare it to our roots indigenous roots we were living in a sacred cycle honoring all of the creatures we would still receive animals as food source but it was in sacred honor and respect and insufficiency it was for our sufficiency for our needs not for our greed and done in a sacred manner the whole cycle and we're just all part of that cycle so i guess at the moment we need to go far off to that other scale in a lot of ways to try to swing it back to a better balance but if we don't address the point of greed we're just still chasing our tails yeah well we won't even change it unless that point is is addressed i don't think and like we were saying earlier it's only through a change in consciousness that the world will be changed and if people are still greedy then they're just going to build economic and uh, structures that reflect that you know that exactly. mindset exactly exactly yeah so back to the four pillars i'm really glad you realized all of a sudden you tweeted went oh oh my god all living beings in yeah. kinship right sure it's every living thing it's not just our nuclear family it really is every living thing that we are to be consciously in awareness and relationship and respect and honor with what i was coming to then is when we have those first two connections in right order and and in a, a better balance we're actually much more settled in our soul in ourselves and so instead of trying to transcend and renounce things and get somewhere else we actually settle in we settle into a place that we naturally are deep listening deep feeling deep witnessing and that is actually our soul instead of sitting in our head and sitting in this separate identity this disconnectedness we're here we actually find ourselves here and when we find ourselves here and we really are listening and experiencing from our soul we're aware of our true nature we transcend the limitations of our mind 
it's just so much easier to witness that a thought comes and a thought goes. It's so much more easy to directly experience that subtle realm of our being and that we are all this. It's so much easier to be in tune with our own authentic expression as well. And I think that's a big part of that third pillar, that our unique and authentic expression is to be embraced. If we're deeply seated and settled in ourselves, then we're comfortable with being our unique expression. And we are much more expansive. We are much more loving. We are much more fulfilled. And the primary reason for this, the primary reason we are seeking awakening, we're seeking enlightenment, oneness, is because deep down in our psyche we feel separated and the thing that humans fear the most is isolation. So think about that. Connection one, pillar one, nature, you're no longer in as much isolation. Connection two, pillar two, kinship, connection with all living beings and your family, you are no longer as separate or in isolation. Ah, I am here. I feel belonging. Pillar three, the soul, the unique self. Oh, I'm safe to be here. I can finally be present. And what happens when we finally relax and settle in and we feel safe and we're really present in the now? What happens? It's impossible for the ego to follow you and act itself out when you are deeply seated in the now. And so you don't even have to then deal with these ego constructs of identification and fear and worry, past, future, da-da-da, all the story, the monkey mind. Just naturally, you're sitting in the now. That's pillar three. And from there, pillar four, when those first three pillars are rooted, when we are seated deeply with those, pillar four is recognized naturally. We see the relationship of microcosm, macrocosm, within, without, uh, form, formlessness, cause and effect. We see all of that clearly. We're no longer caught up just in our fixated thoughts. We're seeing the whole picture, the whole relationship, and that brings it all in, into balance. It's like a construct. I use different analogies in different moments, but right now I feel to use the analogy of a chair. You know, if you sit down on a chair and you've only got one leg, what's going to happen to the chair? <laughs> it's going to fall over. So the four pillars really are like the four legs of a stable chair. And this is what my elders always used to say. You knock one over and that seat starts to rock. You knock two over, it starts to tip over. It's completely lopsided. You knock over three and you can't stand up anymore. You knock off the last leg and you're done. And this is what is happening in the world. This is our modern world crisis situation. We disconnected from nature. We've dispossessed ourselves. We've taken over with the idea that man is greater than the natural laws and God, and he knows everything and he can rule and therefore he can be the elite and consume greedily, et cetera, et cetera. So we've knocked off pillar one, our connection to nature, country, 
the natural world. As a result, because we're disconnected from that, we're in the me mind, we're separate from each other and all living beings, and so we violate each other. And we feel even more unstable in our psyche. We're afraid, we're in grief, and we don't even realize why we're in grief. We don't even realize what the gap is in our soul. And so we're hungry, we're craving, we're desperate to fill that up. We go and we consume more, we go and we possess more, or we catapult ourselves to trying to somehow make ourselves more secure. So we go off on some, well, maybe it's a transcendent path. Oh, I'm going to go up to the golden realm to escape. I'm going to renounce. Oh, <laughs> none of this is real. And it's not knitted together. And I say with this with the deepest love and, and respect for everyone whose primary focus has been on the self, because we've all been there, we know there are benefits to it, and there's still something missing. Because if we don't have those four pillars in place, we're not seated powerfully in balance, in harmony. So that's my wish, is that we can all recognize how relevant these pillars are to our lives. You know, it's got nothing to do with our race or our culture or where or when we were born. These are the natural laws that are appropriate and true and real to every single living one of us. And if we all look closely, we'll see that truth for ourselves, that our fears, our grief, our wounding is all tied up in this mess of separation and disconnection which means there's incredible hope because it's all still here. We just need to rebuild our relationship with it. We just need to reconnect, restore our sacred connection with earth, with all living beings, with our family, our loved ones. We need to recognize the wounds that it all comes down to the same type of wounding. We're all feeling separate. We're all afraid. None of us want to be isolated. We want to belong. And then we can rest again in ourselves. We can rest in our soul. We can rest in love. We can see from the truth of our heart and our soul. And in some ways, this is the revival of the feminine too. Because we've been through this huge paradigm, this huge passage of the patriarchy and the violation against the feminine principles and powers. And, and that's reflected in our dispossession from Mother Earth and our violation of her, our greatest mother. And so Indigenous cultures, they are matriarchal. They honour first and foremost Mother Earth and the feminine. They recognise that if we don't uphold those powers of the feminine, we lose connection, we lose empathy, we lose love, we lose belonging. And when we lose all of that, we become fearful, we become controlling, we become dominating and obsessive and possessive. And all of that creates great destruction. So I feel, along with this resurgence of Indigenous wisdom, is a resurgence of the feminine, that we're all in some way seeking to bring that back into harmony and balance. And in counterbalance to that is right honour of masculinity too. This isn't about to the exclusion of masculinity. It's about really honouring those energies equally 
in ourself, no matter our gender, no matter our race, our culture, our, our, you know, way of living, that if those energies are out of balance in ourself, they'll be out of balance in our world around us. And so the four sacred pillars acts as a model and a map for us to restore that balance as individuals and collectively. Nice. You should take a transcript of that and make it a chapter of a book. It was also eloquent. Um, it reminds me of the Hindu or Vedic model where they speak of a cow who is standing on four legs, but now only three legs, now only two legs, now only one leg. And it, it's sort of representative of the um, decline of natural law from an age where 100% natural law was lively and expressed and then gradual diminishment of natural law over the ages till there's very little left. But one thing they say in this model is that the resurgence to the full value of natural law, it's kind of like the hockey stick model where it goes down gradually, but up quickly. Um, Yes. And so hopefully we're in the midst of something like that right now. Yeah. And that's why I said, look, there really is great hope because as much as we we are all collectively suffering, and as you beautifully pointed out before, as long as there are millions of people in prison, that's trickling into our own psyche, into yeah. our own field of being and consciousness. So we really are all connected in the same tapestry. Some health authority in the US, I forget what it was, but just the other day they announced that pretty much all people should be routinely screened for anxiety because it's so uh, epidemic. I don't know what the screening is going to do. What are they going to do? Give them anti-anxiety well, medication? Right, give I mean, another number to it? Yeah, or you give know, them point some out, pills? Point out the, another deficit in the world. There really is great hope because as much as we are experiencing individually and collectively, great crises and challenge and conflict, the principles for well-being are available to us. They really are here. I'm not suggesting it's necessarily an easy process. It's not. There is work. And in some ways, just like you talked about the hockey stick model, well, I talk about the the spirals that on one hand, we've got an awakening, a spiraling up. On the other hand, we've still got a spiraling down. Of you know, the ego really goes to its <laughs> its full experience. We all have to completely experience our shadow side as well. And so there's this simultaneous spiraling happening, or an overlapping of paradigms. We've got the old paradigm that's maybe say patriarchal or unconscious and disconnected, and then we've got the the emergence of feminine and awakening and reconnecting to the heart and oneness consciousness etc but the reality is we're, we're in that middle bit where it overlaps and that middle bit is confusing and messy and it's full of shit <laughs> so we've got to wade through some of that you know before we we really are able to integrate ourselves so if we have a model that helps us with that we're able to really find the gold. Do we still experience and are aware of the cracks and the wounds? Yes, we are. But what's that Japanese art, you know, where they get the broken bowl and they glue it back together with gold? I don't know the name of it, but I've heard of it. Kisugi or it's something like that. But everyone's seen that beautiful art, right? Well, 
that's like our life now. Can we erase the fractures we've experienced entirely from our psyche, from our experience? Absolutely not. But we can bring gold to it. We can really understand how to grow something beautiful from these experiences. We can create even greater beauty in our world and in our life because of what we've been through. Yeah, the way I view life is it is not arbitrary or random or cruel or meaningless. The world is our guru and that they're as, as harsh and difficult as it may seem at times, there is an evolutionary purpose to our existence and to everything that we encounter in life. Again, that sounds glib, you know, because people go through horrendous stuff. I'm not making light of that. But I think in the big picture, if we could see it clearly, what's really happening, if we could zoom out far enough, uh, we would see that all is well and wisely put and that there is an evolutionary prerogative or agenda or trajectory to the universe. And not only does God exist, but God isn't mean. He, well, no. Yeah, and everything that's happening is ultimately in the service of evolution. And I say Truly. that because, you know, we we're just talking about anxiety here in this country anyway. Suicides are epidemic. Depression is huge, particularly with COVID. Everybody had to be cooped up for a while and they couldn't handle that. So I'm always saying things in these interviews to hopefully give people the inspiration or the hope that you can turn it around. We all possess deep within an unlimited reservoir of happiness. And anything you can do to tap into that, do it. And life can improve no matter how dire it may seem. There's always hope and there's always a bright future if we can see clearly and far enough. Totally. And that capacity to see, not just to see, but to make contact with that bigger picture is something that does arise out of a, a deeper state of connectivity in ourselves. When we have greater interconnection and integration of our awakened experiences and it's grounded that's the interesting thing. The more grounded we are in that awakening, instead of something a bit dissociated or disembodied, the more grounded we are, the higher we are able to expand in that awareness. We're actually able to see the bigger picture, just like a tree. You know, the, the deeper its roots go, then the higher its branches reach. Exactly. So, I, I was reading an article the other day about how the Burj Tower in uh, Dubai, it's the tallest building in the world. They sunk the pylons or whatever they call them, like 50 meters into the ground in order for the building to raise that high without being unstable. Similar to us. What was it? The Beatles said, the deeper you go, the higher you fly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a line and, one and of their songs. As you said, you know, it's no longer something that's a glib perspective. It's actually profound. It is liberating because when we are able to see that, we can keep things in perspective. We do recognize that, okay, it's not so much that there is a God that is mean. Yes, the universe, the cosmos is full of destructive forces, and that is part of its whole immense, profound play of creation. Evolutionary mechanism. Exactly, evolutionary mechanisms. And not only that, but the experience we are having now is not even a speck of 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 a 
dust of the cosmos. It's not even a blink of a blink within the blink of a blink of the blink of the blink of an eye of God. You know, it's like we're so blink, blink to the so caught power, in this. <laughs> yeah. So like we're so caught in this. Oh, it's going to love. When am I ever going to get out of this suffering? Uh, and really, what we are is, is this eternal spirit going through these journeys, you know, entering, rising, surfacing, diving deep. And, you know, that's what we are. So when, as I said, when we are able to have an integrated process of our uh, more awakened states and yeah. we can ground that with a holistic process, then we can keep that in perspective. We don't go off on a lopsided process. We we have the right foundations and we have the right scales and timings of our awakening and it's a much more balanced encounter. Is what you just said, the cosmic perspective, is that an example of point four, the cosmos, recognizing mm-hmm. the vastness of our true nature and of our of our place in the universe? Totally. It's perspective. It's yeah. all about perspective and, and recognizing those, the blueprints of those lords. That's really important. I mean, it's funny because that's that's what I do. That's why I have like I have about a collection of about a thousand pictures of galaxies and nebulae and all that stuff. And every five seconds or so, they change on my screen. And I'm not always looking at my screen, but when I am, boom, I see a galaxy. Sometimes I'll pause for a moment and think, okay, a hundred billion stars. It's a hundred about a hundred thousand light years across that galaxy. Think of all the lives being lived there. And, and I'm probably looking at something that happened, you know, a billion years ago because of the distances involved or a couple million years ago. And so all those lives are gone and I'm in a galaxy. I'm a life like that. And yet I am also the awareness that contains all galaxies. So we're individual and we're cosmic. It's a kind of like a spiritual practice to contemplate that on a regular basis. Most definitely. Some of you might have already seen it, but if you haven't, Take a little look at Carl Sagan's The Blue Dot. Oh, yeah. It's just beautiful. It captures it beautifully. This perspective is something that we really do experience when we integrate the more awakened states and we're able to be seated firmly in that. We can experience that cosmic perspective. And if we don't bring that back into a holistic framework, we can get lost off out there in that too. So that <laughs> plays a part in that yeah. disembodied trail. True. I think Ramda said, you know, you can be totally cosmic, but don't forget your zip code. You have to uh, <laughs> integrate boundless <laughs> and boundaries. If it's integrated properly, then the greater the unboundedness, the more precise the focus can be. They're not only not in conflict with one another, but they're complementary. They're complementary and in a way they're just opposite ends of the same field. Yeah, yeah. So it's like this whole spectrum, just like form and formlessness. Rupa eva shunyam, shunyam eva rupa. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. form. And again, we can embrace that as a concept, but then how do you nurture and cultivate practices and experiences that support you in having the direct realizations of that. So it is in in balance and in harmony rather than something that's just abstract and conceptual. It's like, well, 
we are that. And I think a lot of people are chasing this, I think you called it Neo, Neo, Neo Advaita Vedanta. Yeah, it's sort of yeah, like the McDonald's version it's of, like, of yeah, Vedanta. Exactly, exactly. And it's <laughs> like, like to the exclusion the of, of all the aspects. So it becomes so dismissive of so-called reality and existence as if it no longer is real. What was that book, The Disappearing Universe or The D- Disappearance of the Universe, something like that? Oh. Um, and I remember for yeah, years Gary on the back of, yeah, and End for years universe. on the back of that, I was dealing with so many people experiencing this complete dysfunctionality yeah, exactly. as a result of going off into this type of tangent. It's like, well, okay, it's the way we, you, whatever, the me, the mind is perceiving reality that is not real, not that reality itself is unreal. Perfect. Excellent. I'm glad you said that. It's not that the world is an illusion, it's that we misperceive what it actually is. We have a very distorted, limited appreciation of of what it actually is. Yeah, yeah. And so let's go back to this little principle we've been going around on, which is the deeper we go, the more grounded we are, the more rooted we are, the more we are able to come into alignment with the true nature of world existence ourself we're actually able to see it for what it is in some ways it's the opposite to a lot of spiritual teachings and approaches and you know what when we see it for what it is we are moved to tears or to awe there's a bumper sticker somebody sent me it says if you're not in awe you're not paying attention (laughs) so not only is it not an illusion which is to be just brushed away but it is god incarnate in every little item in every moment yeah in every moment and you can integrate that because otherwise you'd be just sitting there with your jaw hanging open the whole time (laughs) right and oh speaking of this now i did write about this in my autobiography and in awakening you which is For those of you who would like to explore perhaps more deeply practices that that help you in integrating conscious experiences, I spoke to this process. I realized after I'd been in the Himalayas for, for all that time, I'd been in these profound states of dissolution. There was absolutely no sense of a separate individual me at all. And that then merged into this passage, just this ongoing trail of Turiya. You know, it was just like Turiya means the the fourth state, transcendent state. Right, yeah. And it was just a constant slipstream of awaking the dream consciousness. And I was so in bliss, so in bliss, that I wasn't functioning (laughs) quite as usual. And I was very fortunate, blessed to have people around me who were supporting me during that time. But it wasn't, it wasn't so much dysfunctional. It was just that I was just so in bliss. I was in tears of laughter and awe and wonder nearly every moment of every day. And I had come back from this, come back from language is a bit limited, but anyway, forgive me there. But so I'd been in this complete realm of consciousness, God being, if you like, and 
in that state, it was like there was this reforming of a sense of the individuated stream of the soul, of consciousness, and there was this vibration of knowingness, consciousness surrounding me that was, oh, well, you no longer need to be incarnate. And then I was experiencing all of creation, the cosmos, and then it zoomed in to earth. And I was experiencing all of earth and every person on earth. And I could feel and hear every person on earth and the suffering and the experiences. And I could feel and hear all the prayers for freedom. And I went, oh, no, I better get back into the body. (laughs) And I came back into the body because it was a conscious choice that, no, I want to continue sharing and serving and imparting whatever I can to support humanity and re-establishing greater harmony or awakening or or, or whatever it was. And so I then underwent a process of, okay, how do I now really integrate these expansive, blissful states in a way that I can, yes, I can be that, I can be aware of that, and I can really function. And, And it all came down to this simple process, integrating those states with all five senses. So I started a rotating practice. Day one would be focus that state with the gross feeling body. Keep anchoring with the feeling. Second day, keep anchoring with the seeing. Third day, keep anchoring with the listening. Fourth day, keep anchoring with the tasting. Fifth day, keep anchoring with the smelling. Then the sixth day could be anchoring with just sensing. And the seventh day could just be... Just being. Right, just being. And so I made a practice of rotating that to the point that I do experience the activation, integration, conscious engagement with all senses in in every moment. I'm grounded. And it's actually our connection with nature that enhances and supports that. Nice. Very nice. There are so many different stories like that of people going into states of samadhi and then their teachers saying, all right, now get out there and do something with it. (laughs) Because such people are precious for the world. It happens with NDE people too. People have these near-death experiences Mm. and and they're like, oh, this is great. I don't want to go back. And then someone says, you got to go back. Your mission (laughs) is not complete. And then they come back and tell others about it and it gives them hope. You know, there's a lot invested If you think of our existence as a training camp in which we acquire greater and greater ability, there's a lot invested in someone who has reached a state of experience such as you just described. I think there's something to the bodhisattva approach of wanting to... There's a nice verse somewhere in one of the Vedic literature things. It says, uh, thy gifts, my Lord, I surrender to thee. So, you know, one becomes a vehicle for paying it back or paying it forward or something because we've been gifted with this profound, beautiful experience. And it's almost selfish to just wallow in it and not come down from the mountain, so to speak, and provide. Well, totally. Yeah. And in fact, when we really have pure awakening, and I've said this many, many times, that awakening is not for the self, it's from the self. There is a realization that it never ever was about the self, for the self, 
it's just never been about that. It's been about the whole. In reference to your comment about the Bodhisattva, that was the initiation order and vows I undertook at the age of 21 with the Buddhist uh, Tibetan Buddhist fraternity. So that was one of my ordinations. And that moment when I was in that dissolved state, if you like, and, and then there was a sense of a reforming, that was the verge. In some ways, it's almost like, hmm, was that a test? Because the vibration, like I say, the words around me were, well, you no longer need to be incarnate. You are this. And I could have just left the body completely, but I realized I couldn't. I wanted to be here to serve. Yeah. There's a story about Vivekananda and Ramakrishna where Vivekananda went into this beautiful state and then he said, oh, this is wonderful. I just want to stay in this. And Ramakrishna said, I'm so disappointed in you. What's the matter with you? I want you to go out and give this to the world. It's not a sacrifice. It's not like you've made some great sacrifice or compromise. It's to your benefit to serve in that way. It's in service of your own continuing evolution, I would say. It's in benefit, yes. It's in fulfillment and it's in furtherment because I am you, you are me, I am all beings. And and if I can give back at least as much, if not more, to you, to others, to Mother Earth, then I can contribute to returning our cycle to one of not just rebalance and not just sustainability, but one of abundance. Okay, that's probably a good note to end on. Uh, there's, there's a number of sentences you've uttered which are so eloquent that I thought, oh, we could end on that. And then I talk some more. I'm not going to talk anymore right now. That was great. So uh, thanks so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing. And keep doing it. Awesome. <laughs> and thank you. And I sure hope you keep doing it too. It's fantastic and and great love to everyone listening in and watching. Be well and in oneness. Thanks. Thank you. And and thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Go to the BatGap website if you want to see what interviews we have scheduled or if you want to sign up to be notified when interviews are posted. You can also Mm -hmm. subscribe to the YouTube channel and YouTube will notify you. But anyway, we appreciate your time and, uh, Hope to meet you in person someday, Asira, if I ever get to Australia. Oh, that would be awesome. All righty. Well, have a great day. And, we'll uh, and a lovely rest. Much love. Good. Thanks. Bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome again. We ran out of time at the end of the interview, and many questions had come in. So I really wanted to take this opportunity to respond to some of them for you. And also, I'd like to let you know that if you're interested in exploring the four pillars more deeply, I am going to be starting a live six-week online program that begins on the 9th of October this year. So I'd really welcome you to join in with that and take some deeper exploration for yourself of how you can connect with the four sacred pillars in your own life and and bring that holistic awakening into greater reality for yourself. 
So we'll just move on into some questions. And the first one we have here is from Karen Dar of Israel. I hope I've pronounced that correctly for you. And the question is, what are your thoughts, viewpoint regarding all is a projection or a dream? I made a brief comment about this during our talk that oftentimes there's a notion that reality itself is unreal, particularly if we take that branch and a more exclusive stream of Advaita Vedanta or, you know, Neo-Advaita Vedanta being, oh, my thoughts are not real, my mind is not real, my body is not real, this world is not real, etc. Whereas I really love to clarify that for everyone being that it's not so much that existence is unreal, it's that the way we perceive it to be is not true in its nature. And that's where it points towards dreamlike in nature. Our mind grabs hold of events, sequences of events, and labels them and defines them and stores them as fixed impressions, fixed ideas. So at the mental level, it appears as if things are fixed to some degree, whereas if we are truly present in consciousness, in awareness, and we're abiding in accord with existence as it is in the living moment, we do see that it is very much a dreamlike phenomenon and that all of this is an emergence from what we might call the void shunyata, the unseen, the uncreate. And so quantum physics speaks very much to this, that if we dig down into this so-called fixed reality, we begin to discover that it's no longer substance. Those subatomic particles dissolve into sound waves and light frequencies. And that's where we then really come into contact with this dreamlike nature or the projection of the dream of consciousness, a bit like a movie projector. So if we're really deeply present in conscious awareness in the living moment, we see that nothing is fixed. Everything is this scintillating emergence and submerging again of light particles and sound wave frequencies in a continuum. Nothing stays the same at the seen or manifest level. So everything rises and falls from within itself. And once we see and understand that, we have a very different perspective of our so-called self and existence. It's not that we then seek to abandon it or dismiss it or refute it, but rather we have a relationship with it that is in true perspective, being we understand in its core essence, fundamentally, it remains unchanged, it remains eternally, yet in its manifest play, it is transient and ephemeral. It is forever changing. That's the gift. That's the bliss. The eternal nature means we do not need to be afraid. There is nothing 
to fear. There is no separation. There is no beginning, no ending. We belong. We are existence. Always have been, always are, always will be. And then the corresponding side to that is we also do not need to fear because all things pass and change. And we are in that rivering. There is a great play at hand. We begin to see the workings of creation from a deeper place of presence and loving acceptance. So thank you, Karen. That was a fantastic question. So our next question is from Susan Forst of New York. What do you have to say about the vulnerability of children and how hard it is for human beings to come to terms with false beliefs learned early in life, usually through parents or other caretakers. I'm interested in how we get entangled with each other and how that relates to spirituality. Well, yes, this is a very big question and, uh, of course, very important and relevant for us all because, indeed, it's our makeup as humans that the strongest passage of our foundational development is in our formative years from, of course, well, preconception, but primarily we think of it from birth through to around the age of six or seven. Our brain, our subconscious and unconscious field is very much like a sponge. There's a strong tendency for a lower field of discrimination Recently, it's been proven that children do still have a degree of discrimination, perhaps a little more than we have thought for a long time. Nonetheless, primarily, we're just very much like sponges and we're absorbing our environment and we're learning by way of example. And so if our adults around us are still wounded and operating from the child self, we identify with our parents or family as an unsafe representation. Of course, this all happens unconsciously. And a large amount of this becomes predominantly unconscious or subliminal. And aside from what we pick up on the scene or heard level through direct actions or words that are spoken, there's also our vibration, of course. So for myself, for example, as a child, I was so acutely tuned into the other realms or other levels of manifestation being the subtle field that I could feel a person's vibration very clearly and determinedly whether they were saying something or not. I was experiencing those thoughts or feelings as if they were physical to my being. And so we're all being impacted by that and we're all interconnected, as I spoke about already in our conversation, that being all interconnected and interdependent, we are all influencing each other. It's like a tapestry. One thread will move and every other thread in that fabric is going to move. And so that happens, of course, very much at a vibrational level how we can begin to address that first and foremost is by really acknowledging and recognizing that fundamental makeup to all of us, understanding how truly sensitive we all are as a manifest being. 
And if we bring awareness and attention to this, we can take greater care with how we are connected in ourself, how we give loving kindness to ourself. We develop self-reflection, especially through meditation. We can distance ourselves from that backlog of impressions that we have accumulated. And we, with that sense of a disentangling or distance through meditation, we're able to loosen our identifications. We're able then to be more of a witness and observe. And along with that comes the gap and the space to make more conscious and intentional choices around our words and actions so that even if it's just ourself as an individual in whatever relationships or as a parent, we become more responsible and more capable of creating conscious, love-centred relationships. So being able to interact from a place of presence. Being able to model this for our children, of course, is really the ideal. I also mentioned that, that this is where it begins. First and foremost, we're emotional beings and our capacity to bring this into our educational system is not beyond us at all. This is something for great hope that we can give energy and resources and time to foundational development so that our children are supported with more conscious emotional intelligence. And as I've I've said many times before, it is far easier to grow conscious children than it is to heal wounded adults. And so sadly, the truth is, of course, for most adults, we do have to undergo that process of disentangling those conditions. And that's a big, big part of our spiritual journey and our process of reawakening because it's it's not really something new. It's, it's a realigning. It's a reconnection to our true nature that we are really seeking. So thank you for that wonderful question. And I, I wish you and everyone great love in that process of disentangling and, and great inspiration too for you to be more consciously connected and holding that space for others in your life and especially for our children. And next we have a question from AJ Maharaj of Ontario. AJ says, I really loved your first Back Gap interview. Thank you. I loved it too. And after checking out your website, I loved your articles and insight on love spirituality and oneness. I have deep fear and confusion regarding being separated from my loved ones after death and not knowing them. I love my family deeply and I am wondering what your thoughts are as others say that love and connection last forever. Well, Ajay, I'm sure you're not alone in those fears. It's very common to our human condition because we become so identified with this realm, this level of being, which is the more gross level, being the identification with form, we imagine then that there really is a beginning and an end and a severance to our existence. Whereas if we dive deeply into the true nature of our being, we discover that really our fundamental essence is continuum. 
So even if you try this, this little contemplation, just briefly for a few moments, if you close your eyes and you think back to the moment before this moment and then the moment before the moment before this moment and, and you just continue taking your awareness back there to yesterday, two days before, a week before, a month before, a year before, keep going back. Notice that even as you go back, it's the same self that is reflecting back. And as you reflect back, even in those points of memory, you'll be aware you were the same self. The events were changing, your physical form was changing, your age, circumstances, etc. Yet within you was this same self, the one that is aware the one that is the energy behind the events, the one that is conscious, consciousness itself. And that has not changed. So when you really connect with that and you rest deeply into that essential self, that essential energy and being, the more deeply you rest into it, the more you directly experience and encounter this true nature of continuum, the unchanged, the unborn, the undying. So the truth is you could continue reflecting all the way back, even to the moment you're born, to the time you were in the womb, to the time of conception, to the time of preconception, that everything is a continuum of this consciousness, this energy of beingness itself. So this is why the yogis and the masters have encouraged humanity for millennium to exercise this state of awareness, to meditate and to do yogic practices that help us stay in touch with this essential nature so that we are less inclined to become fixated and identified with this very transient physical manifestation or the collection of our thoughts or a set of specific circumstances, then we can appreciate and enjoy them. We can celebrate them, but keep it in perspective with the truth that our being has always been here before we identified with these events, with this identity, etc. before, during, and after. So it's this beingness that continues beyond form. It's this beingness that gave rise to this form. And we have now an incredible number of accounts of near-death experiences return from even clinical death where there is a consistent report from individuals who go through this passage, whether it's described as a tunnel of light or not, but that in every one of these reports, it's the same. There is a connection with loved ones who have already passed, who are there greeting them at that junction, that transition of moving through beyond form and into the realm so-called after form, and that it is love that is greeting them, that there is this tangible potency of love and peace and knowingness that it is all okay even when those particular individuals are guided 
and love to return to the body, that it's not their time to depart and to trust that there is no need for fear, that there is a purpose to everything we are experiencing and that indeed it's love that always remains. Even if we look into our true nature, we discover that true nature is boundless. It is all-encompassing. There is no division in it. There is no fixed point of time. It is all time, all place. And what really is love? Love is all-encompassing. Love is the suspension of our sense of separation, our differences, our divisions. Love is embrace. Love is connection and oneness. And so that is our true nature, that we always have been, always are, and always will be. So I really encourage you, Jay, with your practices to continue resting into your essential nature and you yourself will make contact with that essence of the eternal love. You yourself will know and realise that. And you probably already have had moments of that. So just a little reminder, even though sometimes you feel or might feel as if you've lost that again and you feel like you're in, in this conceptual level of experience, that energy has never left you. It will continue guiding you. It will continue reminding you and pointing you back to the truth. Thank you. And our next question is from Deborah Thunderchild. What an awesome name that is from Massachusetts. I'm so sorry. I've probably completely messed up the pronunciation of that. USA. Deborah says, I have often heard it said that everything happens for a reason and is for the greatest good of all. Yet when I look at what we do to nature, the way we objectify animals and treat them as slaves, I'm heartbroken. I love them dearly. They're my friends, my family and my teachers. I feel you. I feel the same, the truth. I'm trying to understand how I might best help them and heal this rift between humans and other animals. Thank you so much, Deborah, for that, that love and soulful connection you have and feel with our fellow living beings, likewise in, in our culture here as Aboriginal Australian people. We hold that principle very true and dear that we don't see a hierarchy of value between humans and animals we do see each and every living creature and being, even rocks and rivers and trees, as a collective family. And the very fact that you see it this way is already your work of healing and helping restore that sacred relationship and connection between all living creatures and people on this planet. So I encourage you to celebrate that truth, celebrate the love you have, allow yourself to receive that acknowledgement and gratitude and appreciation of your own relationship. Really acknowledge that already that love, that connection that you hold, the knowingness is vibrating out around you. It is transforming people 
things, living creatures, I'm sure that wherever you go, there's a synergy for you between perhaps it's the birds in one moment or an insect in another or the trees. And that synergy is itself a vibrational healing field. So continue with that work. Do your best to gently share that with others. Of course, we don't do that by way of trying to convert or convince others, but by way of leading as an example. That becomes a field of magnetism, that those who can benefit or learn from the connection you hold, they will be drawn to you. And, of course, we can all continue evolving and furthering these connections, expanding upon these connections. And that's, for me, why I feel the responsibility of passing on the wisdom I have gained through direct experience and the learnings I've had with my elders so that that can continue growing in relationship with everyone else as well because there's an exchange when we do that. So you might actually be interested in joining in that six-week online program as well and seeing how you might expand on that already existing beautiful connection that you have and how you might be able to bring that further into the world in your own way. Thank you so much. Great love and honour to you for holding such dear love for all living beings. This is fabulous. We've got some great questions. So the next one is from Amanda Kay in Tasmania. That's right down the bottom of Australia for us here in in the southern part of the world. I am a self-employed artist and need to plan my projects and ways to fund my living. How do you suggest that a person live in the moment, surrendering oneself to the universe and also plan for the future? I love this question. I love this question so much because it's another example of how inadvertently we do tend to take on certain angles of teaching or concepts to the exclusion of the whole. And what I've observed happen for quite a number of people is revolving around this notion of being really present in the now and living the now and surrendering the now, etc., is that then the mind draws a bubble around that as if this is a bubble, when in truth the living now is not time fixed. Some might say it's the gap between past and future and from a linear analytical perspective, sure, it is somewhat in a gap between past and future, yet even if we pay deep attention to this conversation, there really is no gap. There's a stream, a continuum, which past, present and future are actually co-occurring. Now, here's an example, a literal example. If you go out at night and you stare at the stars, up, down, out, in, whichever perspective you want to give it, you stare at the stars, you're in the now, right? You can say, okay, I'm in this bubble, I'm in the now. Yet what you are observing is billions and billions of years in the past, right in the here and now. So there's just one literal example of right here, right now, the past is existing. The past is also existing vibrationally in the impressions that have synergized to make up your energetic field vibrationally and in your cells 
right here, right now. Those impressions are still vibrating here. Water is a carrier of these impressions and information. We're more than 75% water. Emoto, Masuro Emoto did all of that beautiful work and showed how water can carry the vibrational imprint of words that are spoken. So think about that. I can say love right now into my cup of tea. We can take a timestamp and say, right, love was inserted as an impression in this moment. We've already passed this moment, but love, that impression is still here. We can also acknowledge that even our visions, our dreams, we might say are future-oriented. We might say, hmm, okay, I'm imagining my future, I wish for the future. Yet that is also happening right here, right now. So I really encourage you to try and soften the edges around this a bit and, and not be so fixed in the approach to living in the now, but to be really open and allow the fluidity of all these varying impressions that we label past, present and future that are really all here, all a part of our makeup and and also the purpose. It's functional. It is functional to be able to have impressions of the past. For example, because I do, every time I go to the door, I know how to open the door. I don't have to work it out all over again. It is functional as part of the unfolding play of creation that we have imagining and vision. And in some ways we could say, well, even that imagining and vision must already exist on some level for it to even occur. So is it really future? We could play around that over and over. You know, we can get caught up in philosophical contemplation but it doesn't change the truth that we're unfolding in a certain way in the here and now and there's a converging relationship of past, present and future. So relax a bit with it, let yourself play with it, trust that functionally it really serves you to tap into your visions and your imagining for future events and that you give some structure to it. The key is when it comes to planning is to not have too much fixed emotional attachment. Use it as a structure, as a guideline. Hold that open. When it works out that way, fantastic. When it doesn't, okay, there's another way it's going to unfold or work with another structure, timing or planning in the next moment. So really it's an exercise of both embracing all those elements, and not having attachment. So good luck with your planning and um, much celebration for you as an artist. We need more and more of that artistry in the world. Go for it. (laughs) So we have time for one more question, which is from Catherine Shields, also of Tasmania. And... Catherine asks, how necessary is it to have the guidance of a teacher and is being in the physical presence of someone like Isaiah or me necessary rather than just reading or watching the teachings? Well, I guess this one is 
a little bit of a blend between yes and no and any of it and it's all okay because yes there's great benefit in having a teacher and guidance why because well we are in relationship with ourselves through interrelating we don't grow in isolation that's the first point second point is there's always someone ahead of us and someone behind us we are all playing a role in some way of teaching for others and in some way as learning from others and so you know i really celebrate the truth that i'm a living student of existence of creation that in every moment i am being guided and nurtured with existence as it unfolds and continues evolving and that's something to celebrate so the role of teachers has been really significant throughout all ages of our humanity even if we look at our indigenous roots and history we see there were always shamans there there were the head healers elders etc and there was a genuine respect and honoring for these roles based on the empirical value it's through direct experience that we acquire the respectful role of being a teacher or an elder and likewise as a teacher and elder we acquire that position through being qualified in direct experience and the the depth of love and commitment the responsibility that we feel to pass on the gifts of experience for the benefit of others for the benefit of all so there's incredible value in direct exchange and guidance from a teacher and many teachers it doesn't have to be a single teacher and sometimes for some it is for a passage there's an ability to go deeper and deeper and deeper and transcend some of the ego boundaries because a teacher will push you a little bit further because the teacher can see your greater potential beyond your own ego boundaries sometimes there's great value of course in being able to experience that in direct company because we know there is a difference when we're physically in each other's company there's other levels of transmission that do occur and we're sharing a vibrational field at that physical level we really create magic it's incredible however that doesn't mean that we don't get elements of that when sharing online through instruments like this or through books or through audio content or or just video content i myself have felt incredible vibrational transmissions reading things or listening or watching things in other moments and that other people have felt those transmissions from a variety of the material that i provide as well so it's not limited to one or the other i think really it's just that these are different aspects and scenarios that can and do occur and i guess it's dependent on one's circumstances and where you're at as to what is really in alignment or resonance for you suffice to say we really are all students of our life our journey and of existence and our ability to stay open as that can only bring us greater richness and greater joy and greater well-being because we do not exist in isolation our trees our insects the rivers 
every living creature is contributing to the intelligence of life and how it is functioning, how it is evolving. So my wish is that we can all stay open-hearted and welcome the great fabric of divine intelligence through as many different avenues as possible. Welcome that with a humble heart and celebrate this journey, the opportunity to learn and grow together. And whatever I may pass on to you, may it be in loving service for you, what suits you, may you welcome it, what does not resonate or suit you, may it be surrendered in love that it just flows on its way wherever it belongs. So my deepest loving acknowledgement to you all for being, as you are, a student of life and a teacher for others as well and a gift of loving presence and conscious evolution. And again, my deep regards and respect for Rick Archer and the whole team of Backgap, all of you, with so much love and gratitude for being part of this shared experience. Wishing you well. Namaste.